lessons. Oh, here we are. Um, welcome to our first podcast. We're going to be talking about the art of communicating by Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, and I'm happy that you've joined us. More than that, I'm happy that my colleague, Joe Ortiz, who teaches here at Scottsdale Community College uh, with me, and we've taught together for over 20 years. Yeah, at, um, at least. Yeah, yeah, but this is the first project I think we've ever undertaken together, which is kind of fun. Yeah. But just by, just by way of explanation, last year uh, I didn't teach online and, and uh, other people did, but I didn't have any communication then with any of my colleagues or any of my students. And so I kind of built myself a little prison based on stories that I was telling myself and uh, made some moves and some choices that eventually helped me to kind of leave that prison. But this particular book was instrumental in helping me get my mind around the things that I needed to change in my brain in order to function more effectively in the world. Uh, and when I was reading it, even as I was like, every time I read it, I'm like, well, that's Joe already. Well, that's Joe already. He already does this. And, and, but I liked it enough. And then I got to the chapter on, you know, communication at work. I'm like, well, maybe we might you know, benefit from this if I could start a conversation. And this might just be the first time we have the conversation that you and I have it together so that we get a grip on what it is and then we choose to have it again and invite more people. Sure. Um, because some of the stuff is a little weird to me. Like I have been practicing like the, the whole take a minute and sit quietly. Um, <laughs> right. I kind of did that because I followed you in here and let you work and then I was just like hanging out, but I wasn't even sitting quietly like that one. Yeah. I want to try and do that in my class actually, like take a minute and maybe just mark a 60 second, everybody take a deep breath and do nothing, right. you know, and right. then start. So right. I don't know. Right. Well, and I think that that sort of pausing before acting is it's it's a habit of life that um, most of us aren't accustomed to. I mean, we're so used to working in rapid fire succession, going through the checklist, and you know, among many things that struck me. Um, and thank you for sharing this book with me. Um, but that notion of slowing down and becoming mindful, as we will talk about. I think is is so important, particularly in today's world, where everything is you know quick, 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 and we really don't have space that allows us, unless we create that space, that allows us to pause and collect before acting. So um, anyway, yeah, that's one of the values of the pandemic. Actually, is that we were all caught up in that life, particularly with no pause and no yeah. real consideration that there was any other way of doing things. Right. And then the pandemic forced a new way of doing things. And I think as we come back, we're going to want to hold on to some of that because the sure. the pause the pandemic created was also a pause to check in with ourselves and our families and what's important and make changes if you're, yes. you know, not acting in line with your values. And, and so we're seeing like the changes in society like play out as a result of the the big change. Right. You know? Right. Absolutely. Um, so I think we maybe have a better chance of making changes because we are in a period of change. Right. As opposed to trying to force the change when we're all just going so fast and everybody's doing the same thing. Right, right. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. 
Well, so um, just by way of keeping people with where we are, there is a schedule that will take us um, six meetings. So we plan minimally six podcasts. It'll probably run about an hour. I was hoping for 30 minutes because people like those, but we'll probably run about an hour and then we'll make choices about what we do next time. Um, So today we are talking about uh, essential food, pages one through nine, mindful communication at work, pages 115 through 126, and the computer bell. And we've kind of toyed with either reading it or just kind of walking through it and talking about what we've read and kind of today come down on the the side of walking through it and talking about what we've read, um, which puts us on page one with essential food. Um, I do like his metaphor of communication being food. Right, yeah. Yeah, I do too. I think, um, you know, in this particular chapter he sets up through that metaphor what's going to be the theme throughout the entire book and that is that um, our communication uh, kind of feeds other people it feeds ourselves it feeds other people as well and many times when we think of nourishment um, as he says that we often think only you know of what it is we take in through our mouths um, and we fail to really think about the importance of consumption uh, of what we see, what we hear, um, what we may taste, and, and what our bodies touch, right? And so um, this metaphor, I think, is going to be an important driving force throughout of kind of thinking about what it is we expose ourselves to which ultimately then gets transformed into what we put out into the world. Yeah, I agree. I was like, where are we? <laughs> I was on the wrong page. Um, I think the idea, he introduces mindfulness and he's known, like he is an advocate, has, was an advocate for mindfulness his entire um, life. But just, just the, imp- the impact that what we say, like second paragraph actually, when we say something that nourishes us and uplifts the people around us, we are feeding love and compassion, and that becomes, I'm no longer reading, but that becomes contagious. Mm-hmm. I usually talk about what you feed will grow in relation to verbal abuse, but it mm-hmm. works in all forms of communication, and he kind yeah. of brings that out yeah. to focus more on the positive. Yeah. Yeah, and he goes on in the next paragraph to talk about toxic communication. So there, you know, there's an example of how many times in relationships people um, use words, they may behave in ways that um, are not feeding the relationship in, in positive ways by any means. Um, but, but he says that a lot of this is can be a result of what we take in ourselves and how we expose ourselves to um, different things within our environment. Um, You know, he focuses almost immediately, and I really like this, on um, how we spend our time online and and what it is that we're consuming online that may ultimately um, cause us to form this toxic frame of mind that then gives way to toxic behavior towards other people. Uh, I was reminded as I was reading this section of 
how I have to resist when I'm reading a news article about anything going on in the world, I have to resist going down below to the commentary to see the kinds of things that people are saying about whatever the issue is um, that the article is written about. And, it, you know, I'll have to admit that sometimes I spend a little too much time looking at that. Mm -hmm. And then I end up in a bad way in mm -hmm. terms of my frame of mind and my beliefs about humanity and that sort of thing. And so, you know, when, when he says that we need to be more guarded about how we take in information, particularly online, because it can ultimately infect us in not very good ways, so. Yeah, I even starred uh, the idea that you absorb the thoughts, speech, and actions you produce and those contained in the communication of those around you. I had a conversation um, just yesterday with, with someone I think consumes very negative media and I'm like, dude, shut the TV off, yeah. you know? Because, it, and, and studies have shown that it's easier for us to fall into negative thinking. And if you're in a habit of negative thinking, then those patterns are easier to access. Sure. And, and so of course you're gonna like, clue into that around you, the first step in changing the patterns is cutting off the food. Right. Like the negative food. Right. So, and then starting to redirect and all that. Yeah. All that stuff. But yeah. And I, I want to bring out the, on the top of page five, just, just the idea of mindfulness and that mindfulness requires letting go of judgment. Yes. Returning to an awareness of the breath and the body and bringing your full attention to what is in you and around you. When I talk to my students, and I do more talk about meditation and mindfulness um, since the pandemic, since coming back after the pandemic, than I ever did before. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's it's letting go of the voice. It's making the voice because you have that inner voice, and and I sometimes talk about it, and he gets into the inner child, but. It's kind of like the inner parent and the inner child, they argue with each other all <laughs> yeah. the time. Right, right. If if you had trauma in your childhood, right, or and they say like 75, 83% of all people in the United States have trauma in the back, I'm like, that's great, yeah. right? But so if you have that trauma, and things that are traumatic to kids are not necessarily traumatic to adults, but that's trauma, right? Yeah, it stays. Yeah. So you have to like get those people to get along, but when they don't get along, that's when you get your toxic people. Uh, and the people who have that conversation going on most strongly, they have unresolved issues that they may not even be conscious of in their background, and that's what kind of creates that. Yeah, it's um, a script, as they often say. Yeah, yes. that you go to in times of stress. Right. right yeah, 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 exactly. It's, I, I liken it to also like when you speak uh, more than, than one language or you like grow up in the South and then you move to Arizona and you kind of lose your mm -hmm. accent. When mm -hmm. you're under stress, mm -hmm. you'll return to the original mm -hmm. like sound of your voice and you'll sure. get your accent back. And yeah. it's kind of funny that way. Yeah. So yeah. until we actually change those patterns, and they can only be changed through mindfulness, like we're bound to kind of repeat them. Yeah, and I think you know the idea of mindfulness is is one that um, it's it's one that is so important in terms of deciding how to take proper action or right action. Um, and a point that he makes a little bit later on is 
that shows a lack of mind, mindfulness. He says that everything, including love, hate, and suffering, needs food to continue. If suffering continues, it's because we keep feeding our suffering. That's underlined and started in my book right? as well. And I found that so fascinating true. from the standpoint of a lack of mindfulness, that many times people are miserable in their suffering, um, but they don't know how to get out of it. Yeah. And they continue to move towards the same kinds of relationships that cause them to suffer or the same kinds of situations, or, or maybe it's an addiction, or whatever it might be. It's a pattern of thinking. It's a yeah. pattern of thinking. And, and it's mindfulness that is a starting point for hopefully reversing that script or those ways of behaving that are feeding that negativity and that suffering, right? Not an easy thing to do by any means, right? And, and a lot of times, People are within those situations because they can't see any other alternative or option or they lack a support base to help them move forward. Yeah, or right. they just have never been exposed to the means by which they can heal. Right, right, absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. it's just environmental. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, well, actually the next paragraph then, with mindful awareness, we can look into the nature of our suffering and find out what kind of food we've been supplying to keep it alive. Yeah. Sometimes that's the television, right? Right. When we can find the source of nourishment for our suffering, uh, we can cut off that supply and our suffering will fade. Yeah. Sometimes it's the story we tell ourselves, and, and that's a big thing too, because we all tell ourselves stories, and... To some degree, we need to tell ourselves stories. It's the story that we tell ourselves that makes life meaningful if we get to be a character in the story. Sure. But it's, life is a collection of stories from which we can pick and choose, and we choose the stories that resonate with us. But if we're not happy with the resonation we have, like if we've chosen a negative story, we do have the choice to choose another story. It's just that we're caught up with the investment we've made in this story. Right. You know, it, it's a, it, to me it's fascinating and kind of empowering to think about having another story. Yeah. 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 I think, you know, what you're mentioning on all these <clears throat> speaks to me as an educator, and particularly in the community colleges, where um, for almost 40 years I've worked with students who come from all walks of life, different kinds of stories. You've seen it too. Um, most of whom come from backgrounds where their stories aren't very empowering at all. And, and my challenge has often been to kind of create a space that allows them to feel comfortable enough to share their story with me. Um, and I think that's an important s starting point for helping and mentoring and supporting and nudging them in ways that hopefully gives them a different narrative mm -hmm. uh, that they can begin to um, create for themselves so that they can um, move on mm -hmm. and, and succeed and thrive and be happy as, as human beings. And is it always possible for that to happen? No. I mean, there's a lot of things that people are dealing with that I can, I, you know, it doesn't matter how much support I provide them, 
um, or how much uh, tolerance I may give them or leniency, whatever you did. The, they're just having to undergo circumstances that I just don't have any control over, uh, whether it's financial or, or family situation or whatever. And, and that, that's difficult sometimes, is to see the promise of a person, but there's only certain things I can do to provide them with the resources to be successful. But don't underestimate what you can do. Yeah. Like, you, you, you can't give them the the money, the, the whatnot, but you give them recognition sure, and you sure. give them hope. And maybe it doesn't take hold today because they got all that other shit going on, right. but it's in their head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then later they're like, you know, I remember when, and yeah. you know what? I want to go back. You've gotten students that come back. I've oh, yeah. gotten students that come back. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, it, it, you don't know what seeds you've sown by engaging in quote, right behavior. Yeah. It's interesting you mention that because many years ago I was a young, at the time, young, 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 young teacher and I had an older gentleman drop by my office and I recognized him as having had him like, you know, three or four years prior and he came in and we were talking um, about what he was up to these days and I, I knew at the time he was enrolled in my class, he sat in the back and he really wasn't engaged in the class at all. And I never really got to know him very well. So I was quite shocked that he had dropped by. Um, but essentially what came out was his story of how he had been dealing with alcohol um, addiction at the time. And, and so at the time we were talking, he was in a recovery program. Nice. And he said to me, <laughs> I still remember his words, he said, you know, and you're in a personal class. I remember sitting there thinking, a lot of these things you're talking about is just a bunch of shit. And that, those were his words. Uh -huh. And he goes, but I need to tell you that right now my recovery program, they're talking about the same things. And it's, it's catching on much, much better now. Right. You know? The second time you learn something is so much easier than the first time. Right, yeah. right, exactly. And so I guess uh, to your point, we never know what seeds we might be planting. We don't always see the immediate germination of those seeds. Mm -hmm. But man, it still would be nice. To, <laughs> you know, it would be. But I know, I know that in most cases we have students sixteen weeks at most. Yeah. Uh, unless they come back for other classes with us, so we don't know what impact that experience has had on all the. So every once in a while, we'll hear right. from a student. But yeah, you, yeah. There's all kinds of ripple effects you you just don't know about unless somebody comes around and tells you, right? You know, and kind of changes this because, and I think more so with the online environment, it's easy to get stuck in the stories of nobody cares, this isn't really mattering because of the limited contact that you have with with the students themselves. Sure. As a teacher here on campus, some of my more rewarding interactions have come outside of that, you know, time limit on the classroom. It's like seeing somebody outside. I've walked a student to a class because they were lost. It was the most wonderful thing in the world, you know, and, and they come up to another student found me on a day that she wasn't in my class and she was just having a bad day and got a hug. Mm -hmm. You know, and that, you know, that doesn't happen online for me at all. Right. So, um, yeah, yeah. Just, and, and helping people change the stories because they come here thinking they don't matter. And then if somebody says you do matter, then they, they can start there, you know. 
Um, but sometimes it's like calling people on their shit a little bit. I was in Guatemala this last um, uh, Christmas and I encountered a guy who was also an alcoholic. Mm. And uh, there's things I didn't realize that the alcohol does actually eat away at the brain. Like mm. there's brain damage and I'm like, well that explains some of this. But he's like, I'm old, I'm retired, nobody loves me. And I, I looked at him, and he was also drunk. And I looked at him like, how old are you? And he's like, 55. <laughs> and that happens to be how old I am. And I looked at him, and I'm like, get a new story. Because <laughs> that one's not working. Yeah. You know, 55 is not too too old. But then he, you know, and he told me his sorrows. And, and he did get a big, like, life shit show five years ago. But it was five years ago. I'm sorry about the language. We're going to have to put a PG. <laughs> sorry, Joe. I'll work on cleaning it up. Um, but he, he, he also said, they only want me for my money. And then he behaved in ways that would lead people to want him for his money. Like, mm. So he sent the kids to go get some Coke and some alcohol for him. And then he overpaid for, which he, he would never have even had to pay anything. But they usually like give a little like centavo or whatnot for yeah. A tip, he like gave him like three times as much as what the kid had bought uh, on the errand. He came and gave him that and money. And I'm like, and the kid tried to refuse it because he knew it was wrong. But the oh. man was operating according to the story. I'm only good for my money. Yeah. And so then he's giving his money, you know, and I'm like, get a new story. You know, the stories we tell ourselves really determine how we interact with the world. Yeah. And I, that has really come through to me in, in reading this book and a couple yeah. of other ones. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, on page seven, I actually made a magnet out of the last statement on the last full paragraph. It says, if the relationship has become difficult, it's because we've nourished our judgment and anger and we haven't nourished our compassion. Mm. Because... And I find that to be true. The more I stay away from someone, the less I know about them, the easier it is to judge that person. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, trying to turn that tide of judgment and anger into compassion can be difficult, but I think that that is one of the ways that we um, show courage, um, you know, because it is easy and I'll speak for myself, it's easy to stay stuck in judgment and anger mm -hmm. than to have the courage to act compassionately towards that person that I feel has quote unquote wronged me um, or done something that is not up to my standards. Um, you know, I think being a dad, I, I, I've had to learn this, right? And, and I, sometimes I haven't been very good at it. If my kids did something that really made me angry and upset, um, that went contrary to what I thought was important, uh, it was easier for me to discipline them in anger and judgment than in compassion. Um, and the times when I think I've been successful is whenever, going back to mindfulness, I didn't react, but instead I kind of collected myself and I thought, you know, this is a difficult situation. And, and what, is, uh, what is an approach? And this is where, you know, my wife Diana has been immensely helpful to kind of help me um, temper my temper <laughs> yeah. in terms of how to approach particularly difficult disciplinary situations. Um, 
because the um, what's the old adage that you catch more flies with honey than vinegar? Yeah. You know, and and I think oh, that, it is so true, right? And so that whole idea of you know how we nourish our relationships with other people to do so in judgment and anger is simply creating more of a divide um, than to be courageous in showing compassion, um, which then hopefully invites more intimacy connection that sort of thing with the other person yeah right so well i think we found a good path here yeah um the last i'm looking at page nine now okay um we have the antidote to um poisoning our relationships and that is the mindful compassion we've just been talking about and loving communication Mm -hmm. love respect and friendship all need food to survive Mm -hmm. without mindfulness we no with mindfulness we can produce thoughts speech and actions that will feed our relationships and help them grow and thrive yeah when yeah. you were talking, I was I was thinking about I sometimes talk about the difference between a reaction and a response. Yes. And the reaction is the immediate trigger, and it is the thing that sometimes makes you want to write in in the comments. Yeah. And getting control of the reaction so that you create a, a more effective response, or or even decide whether or not even a response would be at all merited. Yeah. You know, as in the case of on the internet, but. Um, Taking that moment to stop before you act has been really useful for me because I can change my trajectory. And also I recognize that some of the reactions I have, I'm like, where the heck did that come from? <laughs> right. You know, and then I have to yeah. deal with, honestly, when, because I asked to be back on the committee and uh, I got a, an email message that said, yeah, you can come back, but we're going to be online. And I'm like, online, oh my God, online. <laughs> and then I'm thinking about it, and I'm like, I have lived through every online departmental meeting we've had, and it hasn't killed me. Right. You know, and, and, and so I, it was the, I don't know, it was the interaction that was the trigger, not the actual thing that we were talking about. I'm like, that's interesting. Right. Because I'm fully capable of, you know, doing it in short stints and whatnot. Yeah. From my office. I think that's how I respond. I'm like, I can do it from my office. <laughs> I'm still at work. That's so funny. Yeah, there, there um, is a uh, writer by the name of John Powell who talks about the differences between an actor and a reactor. Mm-hmm. And, and I really love that model. It's a, it's a, you know, in concept, it's an easy idea in practice it's very very difficult right and that a reactor is someone who just simply responds to the world without thought without mindfulness um, but an actor is going to be much more uh, mindful and intentional mm-hmm. in terms of how um, the person is going to deal with in any kind of difficulty mm-hmm. or situation um, and I think that that that's a part of what sometimes we're all challenged to do in terms of our own, um, well, you know, the buzzword uh, in interpersonal communication, which we both teach, is um, emotional intelligence, Mm -hmm. right? And emotional intelligence is really about being um, thoughtful about your emotions and not letting them rule your life, but instead you, you begin to deal with them in very meaningful 
uh, life-giving ways. Yeah, it's just another mindfulness. It's another it like name for the practice of mindfulness. Very much so. Hey, let's take a break right here. Okay. And then we'll put some music in, and you guys can think about this. Take a little break, and we'll be back. We are back, and thank you for sticking with us. Um, now we're going to talk about mindful communication at work, which is on uh, starts on page 115 in the book. If you're interested, um, I did outline the book before we decided what like um, areas and sections to deal with in our six-meeting um, sequence. And uh, so we jump around a little bit, but it's kind of based on the outline and what we figured would work well together. Um, and I put mindful communication at work in the, in the first section because, well, we're at work. Uh, Joe and I work together here at Scottsdale Community College. Right. Yeah. And uh, as we come back from the pandemic, I think there's a need for us to rethink work and work relationships because, because of the cocoon or the potting effect that uh, going online has had on the community of, um, of Scottsdale Community College and other communities as well. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, and you just think about the fact that, um, you know, anywhere between eight to ten hours of our day is spent at work uh, in the company of other people. Right. And, uh, yeah, so it, it's a makes sense that this be one of the first areas that we pick up because we're we're in a work situation spend. right yeah. right absolutely on page 118 the first full paragraph says the way you think about your work and your work relationships affects how you communicate in your work environment yeah uh, and that is so true yeah and that's why knowing people to a degree that you can trust people then facilitates actual like other more work-related or more clearly work-related issues. Right. Yeah, and you know what strikes me, Annalisa, about that is, you know, what makes you happy? Right? You know, and, and I think that we have been fortunate to enjoy a, a, a happy work relationship um, here at SCC. I think that our, our We've had colleagues that have been easy to work with. We have had um, administration that's been easy to work with. And I think about some of my friends and the things that they talk about and what they encounter in their workplaces. Um, it relates to whether it's from gossip to just outright bullying that takes place. And, and I just think I'm not sure that I could have lasted more than a month in an environment like that, you know. So I think that when when I think about work, and I don't think it's this sort of Disneyland here either, all right. I mean, but but generally, um, I'm happy at my workplace, and I have happy thoughts about coming to work. And during the pandemic, it was difficult to be away from work. It was difficult to be away from students, from you all, from colleagues. Um, from a sense of community uh, that I have enjoyed for many years here on our campus. And so, yeah, um, I think that it, it, 
it's certainly the way you think about your work and work relationships certainly affects the way in which you communicate and behave within the work setting, without question. Yeah. I, I also like the idea of leading by example, mostly because I feel like I'm sitting in the presence of a man who leads by example. <laughs> um, but it, it's true, it's true. Whatever, well, and I'm, I'm looking at page 119, whatever your position is at work, you can set an example by learning to listen to everyone with equal interest and concern. And if there's a person that I know or I think tries to do that, I, that would be you. Well, I appreciate um, that. I appreciate yeah. it. I, I um, have, have I, I don't know if it was a matter of um, my upbringing or what it was, but I've always felt um, that I could reach out to and deal with almost anyone. You know, I, I still remember uh, in high school, um, very much like most um, kind of lower middle class high schools or high schools anywhere where you have factions that emerge. You know, you've got the band kids, you've got the athletes, you have, you know, the stoners, you've got, you know. And so I went to a high school like that and I had friends in all of those mm -hmm. networks. Mm -hmm. I, I was just that kind of person that was just as comfortable talking with the guy that was the so-called stoner of the school um, than, you know, people in the band and that sort of thing. I just... I That's just, great. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's always been important to me to just simply get done. And it's something, too, that Diana um, often jokes with me about that I, I'll spend time asking people about themselves. Um, and she's ready to leave a situation. Uh, it's like, you're still talking to that person. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> well, that's great, right, though. That so. is a great practice to have. Yeah. Um, if we go to page 120, there's just some basic, like, yeah. ideas. But you know what? It's good to hear them. It's good to see them, like, greeting your colleagues there are people, and, and maybe I've sometimes been one among them, although I try not to be, who just come to work and go home. Like, but nowadays, if you're just going to come and go to work, you may as well stay home. If you don't want to talk to people right now, you yeah. don't necessarily have to. Yeah. But it is, like, it's part of being a member of the community and creating that positive climate to greet one another. You know, hey, yeah. how's it going kind of thing. Yeah, that section reminded me of, I often um, talk with my students using their language about vibe, you know, mm -hmm. that vibe that you send out, and I, get, I kind of tease them about it. Um, but, but I think that there's a lot of validity to that. You know, as he says there, the middle of page 120, the first few minutes are crucial in setting the tone for your workday, that vibe, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's how we greet each other. Do we greet each other? Um, do you walk into a building and you walk past two or three people and they either, you know, in a perfunctory way, kind of say hi, good morning, or do they spend just a moment to kind of look you in the eye mm -hmm. and say, you know, did you have a good weekend or how was your weekend? Um, and, and address you even by name, you know? Um, so, yeah, I think you're right that it's not like these these huge sort of grand gestures. No. 
uh, that begin to set this tone, but it's that, that general subtle verbal and nonverbal greetings that create that vibe mm -hmm. um, that can begin to impact an entire workplace over time. Right? Yeah, like the last part of that, that same paragraph is that if you've spent the time getting to work breathing mindfully and being in the present moment, you will arrive with a clear mind and you'll be able to greet people with a warm and open smile. <laughs> yes. I Actually, though, you know, I got to work today and I sat in the car for a second or two and, like, breathed because I'm trying very hard to practice what we are now preaching. So I, I think things go better. You get yourself just sure. a little bit more collected and then you go forth as opposed to being scattered the whole way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and you think about um, commute time and... I don't live too far from the campus here. And so I have to be very, very mindful um, and that when I get in my car, I'm less than 10 minutes, I'm on the campus. And so whatever has taken place at home or whatever I've been dealing with, or you know, if Diana and I have talked about something that we're going to have to deal with, now that's on my mind. And all I've got is 10 minutes and that's not enough time, you know, to be able to to process that. So I have to be very intentional about how I settle myself before I and and I. I the worst during the pandemic, you didn't even have a drive. You right? went into another room. <laughs> right, exactly. That's what killed me. Yeah. Right, exactly. So, but you know, one of the things that I have long been in the habit of um, pre-pandemic is not parking close by the building, you know, but walking, you know, and that, I that. see you park further away than I do. And I laugh at myself because I'm like, I'm the one counting steps, but I'll be damned if I'm going <laughs> to. But I, I've always done that. Even, uh -huh. you know, when they created the staff parking that was almost right next to a building, I thought, well, there is something about the convenience, and particularly if you're running late for class or for a meeting, to have an open space close by, but there's something to be gained by parking far away and taking some time to walk to your workspace and to collect yourself before you walk into the building, right? Um, and, and especially in a day and age when we tend to be wired and connected to so much, you know, and even with, you know, AirPods or whatever, you, you still are never disconnected. Right. And, and uh, so when he talks about um, how we take our time to prepare ourselves, whether it's through breathing or through you know, prayer or through just meditative silence prior to moving into the workspace, that can make a world of difference. He's more than that. Like I can, I can deal with the, okay, I'm going to start the day mindfulness. But he's like, take a big breath before you answer the phone. Yeah. Take a big breath before you send that email. Right. Which I kind of wish I had. I had a student tell me she was going to miss the first day of class, and I'm like, I, 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 I could have rephrased the email if I had waited longer and breathed more heavily. In yeah. the end, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a bad email, but missing the first day of class is yeah. a, you know, kind of a bad idea. I'm, I'm a professor here <laughs> doing professor speak. Yeah. So yeah. he wants us to do that before e telephone calls, emails, and then mindful meetings. Like, yeah. like we could have started today just sitting in, in, in quiet yeah. and, and then started, you know, 
which I was prepared. I'm like, can I sit in quiet with Joe? Yes, yes, I can sit in silence with Joe. Okay. Yeah. 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 But I think yeah. it takes a certain amount of trust to sit in silence with someone because we don't, culturally, we don't value silence um, in the mainstream United States and culture. Oh, no. It's always fill it with something, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? And, and it's one of the things I have long done in my teaching is um, I, I don't have a problem if I ask a question and no one has answered and I will just sit in silence. Yeah. And that like freaks them out and then finally someone will say something and just to to kind of break that silence yeah. Yeah. um but you're right i mean we are used to to noise and chaos and um yeah and, and if it's not there we're not comfortable with it um but there is something to be gained but i agree with you that um Asking people before a meeting to take some moment of, of silence, it's like they're just not used to it. No, you know? and it depends on how you ask, because you don't want to come close to saying, let's pray. Right, you right. Know? And yeah. yet at the same time, you're kind of accessing the same brain state. Right, right. Just can't right. dress it up that way. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, so, so yeah. Um, on page 123, last paragraph, during the meeting, practice using loving speech and deep listening. Follow your breathing as you listen. Let one person speak at a time without interruption. Yeah. Don't get caught up in verbal duels. Sometimes when I'm talking to my brother, I, I um, allowed the invitation to engage in a verbal duel. And, you know, I was reading this over yesterday and ended up having a little, like, text conversation with my brother. We don't... We're not Facebook friends, like the, the election got in the way of our relationship. And so this was like the first conversation and he reached out several times during the day. So I'm just gonna call the entire day a conversation. It's one of the first significant conversations we've had since we kind of stopped talking to each other. And yet there are still patterns and I could feel the invitation and I finally put down a boundary, I'm like, you know, we can't talk about this because we're going to both come down on opposite sides of it and, and I don't want to go there. Mm. And uh, he gave me another opportunity to do it and I declined the opportunity and then he just came around and said, that's cool. You know, there's so many other things that we have in common yeah. that we don't need to focus on what the media has provided for us to disagree about. Yeah. And, and so I've really kind of tried to take a a step away from the media and not let the media impact the conversations I'm having with others sure. in my personal life and at work Sure. because yeah. there's a lot of I think of it as poison in the world but the people who have been poisoned are not necessarily responsible for it Right. in, in some ways that said if, if they're in a negative mind path they are responsible for that right. but it's really right. hard to like stop the poison because it's like an addiction Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, and this, this whole section, Annalisa, reminded me of some of the practices way back when that we have been um, trained in, exposed to in terms of norm building within a, a group. Um, you know, kind of begin your meetings with statements of agreements, you know, that there's no rank in the room, that everybody has a voice. And... Um, Back then, I think as a communication person, I used to think, you know, this is obvious, right? But the reality is, is that it's not. 
And it's, it, it might be common sense, but it's not common practice. Uh, so there is value, I think, of making explicit our expectations of how we're going to conduct ourselves. And whether it's a you know, family relationship or within our work relationships, um, or, or even our friendships, that those, you know, in interpersonal, we, we talk about, um, you know, relationship rules, and some of them are implied, um, but there are times when we need to be explicit mm -hmm. in, in terms of what our, what our boundaries are and what our expectations are for talk mm -hmm. and for interacting with each other and what constitutes how we want to be um, conducting ourselves vis-a-vis -vis each other, right? Um, so I think that, you know, his, his ideas of the, essentially prescribing, you know, that, that here's, here are the do's and don'ts for conducting ourselves professionally and collegially are, are, aren't bad things to revisit from time to time, you know? And even in groups that have been together, but which is the other thing is that we may have been a department for X number of years, there's nothing wrong with us revisiting these things because we get sloppy, just like families get sloppy, you know? And, and then we start taking each other for granted or, or we start overextending ourselves and, or boundaries without, without being, you know, meaning to be rude but that's the way perhaps it gets perceived, yeah. you know, by the other person. So I think... When we get sloppy in relationships, that's sometimes when we need to establish a boundary, especially yeah. if we're trying to make a change. Yeah. And I've been exposed to um, the holistic psychologist and the idea that a boundary is an attempt to preserve a relationship. Because many times, you know, a lot of people, when they get a boundary put on them, they feel like they're being rejected. They feel like it's a judgment on them, but it's not. It's a request for a slightly different kind of behavior so that you can go on enjoying each other's company and presence exactly. instead of getting caught in these, like, whirlpools of negativity and whatnot. Yeah, so. yeah, that's a powerful image. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I just came with that. I'm like, what? yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a good one. But whirlpool yeah. of negativity, it starts and it just swirls and takes takes both of you down. Right. So if you notice the swirl, you got to get out. Right. Before it... Right. Absolutely. Oh, I like yeah. that too. Well, he's talking about a, wa a rock in the river. So yeah, maybe that's where that water it. metaphor <laughs> came from. But uh, with the rock in the river, he's talking about actually talking about our suffering mm -hmm. uh, and giving ourselves time to you know express and embrace and recognize our suffering because if you don't it's not like the suffering goes away it just like converts into a form that you may not recognize right. and then it starts to seep out in those ways but when it seeps out in those ways it never really goes away because it's been converted and not converted in a way that leads it out of your body yeah 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 so, well, and he also talks about, you know, the importance and the power at the bottom of page 125. Um, you know, we can practice mindfulness, mindfulness alone, but we can find more ease and joy if we can bring mindful communication into our work environments and have the support of others who are practicing mindfulness with us, yeah. right? And, then, and so what I gather from that is that there is this this sort of 
tr hopefully transformation of the workplace through these practices that um, invites other people to help each other um, get better, you know, as, as human beings and as colleagues and um, just as a, as a workplace, yeah. right? And, and is there a commitment for that, you know, and you would hope that there would be. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. My, um, I developed a personal mission in the last year or so, and, and that is actually to help other people become better versions of themselves. Mm. It's not an original mission. I think I might have stolen it from the holistic psychologist. <laughs> but uh, she's doing yeah. it on a psychological level, and I would be doing it more on a communicative level. Sure. And so I don't feel like I'm duplicating her. In fact, I'm using some of her stuff to inform the, the things that I talk about. But it's essentially bringing that mission into the workplace, like helping everyone we encounter be better versions of themselves by speaking mindfully and being more compassionate. Yes. Uh, by being the best version of ourselves that we can be. Right. We, we help others be their best version of themselves. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that leads us to our last um, assigned reading, which is page 149, The Computer Bell. Um, I'm just going to read it and then sure. you comment on sure. it, okay? So at the end of this book, there are some practices, and I've moved them forward in the discussions so that they kind of resonate with what, what it is we're talking about. So the computer bell. Many times when we work with our computers, we're completely lost in our work and we forget to be in touch with ourselves. Or we may forget to pay attention to our conversations getting carried away in juicy gossip, criticizing, complaining, or other unmindful speech. We can program a bell of mindfulness on our computers, and every quarter of an hour, or as often as we like, the bell sounds, and we have a chance to stop and go back to ourselves. Breathing in and out three times is enough to release the tension in the body and smile, and then we can continue our work. Mm. Yeah. So that's something we can try maybe until the, the next time and, and report yeah. back. Yeah, um, I, I love this idea. I think that um, one of the things I experienced over the past year working remotely has been um, these just awful um, physiological effects mm. of working um, on a computer. Mm -hmm. And it was all, it was manifest in neck pain. Um, and it, it was in talking with one of our former, now retired faculty members um, about this when he continues to teach now for ASU. Um, but he was telling me, he goes, you need to get away from your computer from time to time. And it was such a simple recommendation, yeah. right? Uh, that I had not realized how long I was staying in that position. And so that was the physical manifestation. There is no telling mentally and psychologically what I've been suffering and just haven't you know, realized. And so I, I love this idea of being much more intentional in terms of refocusing to yourself. And um, again, we're back to nourishment, nourishing yeah. your, your soul and your mind and your body yeah. even. 
Um, but the idea of programming it is really good. Yeah. 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 I've embraced the idea of mindfulness, but then I forget. (laughs) 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 You know, so if you got a bell, it 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 makes you remember that you are being mindful. That said, I have a smartwatch, and I totally resist the watch telling me when it's time to meditate because I'm like, I'll be damned. But at the same time, I also know that that would help. So I haven't shut off the notifications. I just fight with them when they show up. Yeah, it's funny because I, I did the same thing, right? I did the same thing yeah. with my watch as well. Yeah, and I think, um, and, and so I'm constantly tapping it because I'm thinking I'm busy right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Know, I'm working against okay, that the notification. Bell on the computer, you're sitting there. Right. I right. think the, the watch is a little too, like, I can't deal. I like have to disconnect the watch sometimes when I'm teaching because I don't want to be interrupted by whatever's going on on my wrist. You know, I want to be right there in the moment. But when I'm at the computer, I'm more than happy to be interrupted and told to be taking a breath or two because it works in the situation. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And and something, you know, that it sort of antithetical to this. And and so I'm not sure where... The medium is is um, you know the psychologist and I, I can't remember how to pronounce his name uh, Mikhail uh, Chekmahovsky I think yeah, or something yeah, like that yeah, talks yeah. about flow okay. and and we get in and artists you know as an artist you've been totally in flow, love my flow yeah right and and writers get in flow and musicians get in flow and so people with certain endeavors may find themselves in a flow state that is this optimal frame of mind where you're just really kind of lost and, and time is lost to you because you're just in a state yeah. of production. And so I think that there's there's something that is to be admired about achieving that flow state, but there's also a point where I can imagine you hit this, this, this ceiling and now all of a sudden, you know, you're just exhausted because yeah. of it. And, and so, I don't know, I, I, it's, it's important to uh, have these notifications that you need to take a break, but maybe it also depends on what the activity is that you're involved yeah. in, right? Yeah. And, and there might be sometimes, such as for yourself when you're painting, where it's not a good idea to have the watch on. Yeah. Right? Yeah, because or at least have it set flow. to go off. I'm not giving up my steps, Jill. Not even when I'm painting. No, I need my steps. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So. Well, we actually did manage to cover everything and made cool. it through, and it went really well. I think. Uh, thank you for 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 coming, and those of you who are listening, thank you for listening. Yes. If you want to show up to a live discussion with uh, Joe and myself, you are more than welcome. Our second meeting will be on the 11th of February at 9 o'clock. Does that work for you? Mm -hmm. 9 o'clock. And we will be dealing with Chapter 2 in the book, The Art of Communicating by Thich Nhat Hanh. And we will be reading Chapter 2, Communicating with Yourself, pages 13 through 33. Uh, And then the exercises will be Drinking Tea and Mindfulness and listening to your inner child, which are pages 149 through 152. If you want to follow along uh, and participate in the discussion, we would be more than happy to have you. Uh, And we really appreciate the time that you took to listen to this discussion today. Okay, have a good day.